Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for Wednesday, February 7, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, the headline, Court Denies Trump's Request for Immunity. Appeals Panel Says He's Subject to Prosecution. Challenge Expected. A federal appeals court panel ruled Tuesday that Donald Trump can face trial on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election, sharply rejecting the former president's claims that he is immune from prosecution while setting the stage for additional challenges that could further delay the case. The ruling is significant not only for its stark repudiation of Trump's novel immunity claims, but also because it breathes life back into a landmark prosecution that was effectively frozen for weeks as the court considered the appeal. The one-month gap between when the court heard arguments and issued its ruling created uncertainty about the timing of a trial in a packed election year, with the judge overseeing the case last week canceling the initial March 4 date. Trump's team vowed to appeal, which could postpone the case by weeks or months, particularly if the Supreme Court agrees to take it up. The appeals panel, which included two appointees by President Joe Biden and one Republican-appointed judge, gave Trump a week to ask the Supreme Court to get involved. The eventual trial date carries enormous political ramifications, with special counsel Jack Smith's team hoping to prosecute Trump this year and the Republican frontrunner seeking to delay it until after the November election. If Trump were to defeat Biden, he could presumably try to use his position as head of the executive branch to order a new attorney general to dismiss the federal cases he faces or potentially could seek a pardon for himself. Tuesday's unanimous ruling is the second time since December that judges ruled Trump can be prosecuted for actions undertaken while in the White House and in the run-up to January 6, 2021, when a mob of his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol. The opinion, which was expected, given the skepticism with which the panel greeted the Trump team's arguments, was unsparing in its repudiation of Trump's novel claim that former presidents enjoy absolute immunity for actions that fall within their official job duties. For the purposes of this criminal case, former President Trump has become Citizen Trump, with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, the court wrote, but any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. The judges said the public interest in criminal accountability outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action, turning aside the claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would prevent the recognition of election results or violate the rights of citizens to vote. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency, 
places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter, the judges wrote. A Trump spokesman said Tuesday that the former president would appeal the ruling to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. In a post on Truth Social after the ruling was issued, Trump insisted that a president, quote, must have full immunity in order to properly function and do what has to be done for the good of our country, close quote. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit took center stage in the immunity dispute after the Supreme Court in December said it was at least temporarily staying out, rejecting a request from Smith's team to take up the matter quickly and issue a speedy ruling, but the high court could yet decide to act on a Trump appeal. There is no timetable for the Supreme Court to act, but the justices are likely to seek Smith's input before deciding whether to keep the legal rulings against the former president in place. If the court declines to consider the appeal, U.S. District Court Judge Tanya Trutkin would be able to restart the trial proceedings. If, on the other hand, the Supreme Court accedes to Trump's request, any timetable it establishes would determine how much longer the trial might be delayed. If the court grants Trump's request without speeding up the appeals process, Trump would likely have until early May before he would need to file his full appeal. But the justices could set much quicker deadlines for reaching a final decision. The Supreme Court has previously held that presidents are immune from civil liability for official acts, and Trump's lawyers for months argued that protection should be extended to criminal prosecution as well. They said the actions Trump was accused of in his failed bid to cling to power after he lost the 2020 election, including badgering his vice president to refuse to certify the results of the election, all fell within the, quote, outer perimeters, close quote, of a president's official acts. But Smith's team has said that no such immunity exists in the U.S. Constitution or in prior cases, and that in any event, Trump's actions weren't part of his official duties. The case in Washington is one of four prosecutions Trump faces as he seeks to reclaim the White House. He faces federal charges in Florida that he illegally retained classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate, a case that was also brought by Smith and is set for trial in May. He's also charged in state court in Georgia with scheming to subvert that state's 2020 election and in New York in connection with hush money payments made to porn actor Stormy Daniels. He has denied any wrongdoing. Also on the front page, an article entitled Millions Across Country could lose internet service subsidy. President Joe Biden recently traveled to North Carolina to promote his goal of affordable internet access for all Americans, but the promise for 23 million families across the U.S. is on shaky ground. That's because a subsidy that helps people with limited resources afford internet access is set to expire this spring. The Affordable Connectivity Program, ACP, 
which provides $30 a month for qualifying families in most places and $75 on tribal lands, will run out of money by the end of April if Congress doesn't extend it further. I think this could be, should be, high priority for Congress, North Carolina Governor Ray Cooper, a Democrat who has worked with a bipartisan group of governors to promote the program, said in a phone interview, to many families, $30 a month is a big deal. It matters a lot to Shirlene Alexander of Charlotte, who said the money she saves through the ACP goes toward her grocery bills. It also offsets some of the stress she feels over medical bills. If they took away ACP, it would be like taking food out of my mouth, said Alexander, a senior citizen on a fixed income. I need the service, and some of my senior citizen friends need it as well. The program is key to the Biden administration's plans to make the Internet available to everyone, which the president has touted repeatedly as he has ramped up his re-election campaign. He has likened it to the Rural Electrification Administration, the New Deal program that delivered electricity to much of rural America in the 1930s. Our goal is to connect everyone in America to affordable, reliable, high-speed Internet by the year 2030. Everyone in America, just like Franklin Roosevelt did a generation ago with electricity, President Biden said in Raleigh last month, So far, only 43% of eligible households nationwide have signed up for the ACP subsidy. But the program has enabled people who have signed up to avoid the kinds of financial trade-offs Alexander described, said Brian Vaux, Chief Investment Officer of Connect Humanity, a nonprofit promoting widespread Internet access. It also gives them access to vital services, such as telehealth, remote schooling, and work, he said. If you put ACP and affordability in the context of the social determinants it drives and the economic value created, the benefits far outweigh the, weigh the cost of $30 per household, Vaux said. If the program expires, participating families, including nearly 900,000 in North Carolina, will either lose internet access or have to pay more to stay connected. North Carolina is among the top states in the country when it comes to taking advantage of the ACP, according to an AP analysis of the program. More than 50% of eligible households in the state are enrolled in the program. A bipartisan group of lawmakers recently proposed a bill to sustain the ACP through the end of 2024 with an additional $7 billion in funding, $1 billion more than what Biden asked Congress to appropriate for the program at the end of last year. The White House is pressing lawmakers to extend the program, but no votes have been scheduled to move the bill forward, and it's unclear if the program will be prioritized in a divided Congress. For President Biden, Internet is like water, Tom Perez, senior advisor and assistant to the president, said on Monday. It's an essential public necessity that should be affordable and accessible to everyone. In the meantime, the Federal Communications Commission has already taken steps
to wind the program down. It has instructed internet providers to send notices about the projected end of the program and announced that it will stop accepting new enrollees after February 7. Nate Denny, the Deputy Director for Broadband for North Carolina, said he's extremely worried about the winding down of the subsidy program, especially as the state is set to receive a total of $1.5 billion from the federal government. Most of that money will be awarded to Internet providers to build Internet infrastructure in areas that need it most. The ACP has a tremendous effect on adoption, but it also has a huge impact on the state's ability to stretch available infrastructure funding. The ACP reduces the amount of grant money an Internet provider needs to build into lower-income communities because it provides the assurance of a steady customer base, according to state broadband leaders the AP spoke with, and an analysis from nonprofit Common Sense Media and consulting firm Boston Consulting Group. The infrastructure money comes from a pot of $42.5 billion allocated for the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment BEAD, B-E-A-D, program, the cornerstone of the Biden administration's efforts to close the digital divide for good. In December, states submitted draft plans detailing lower-cost plans that providers who build networks using BEAD money will be required to offer qualifying families. Several states incorporated the ACP subsidies into those draft plans in ways that would lower the cost for Internet access to zero for some customers. Though these lower-cost plans wouldn't work as designed without support from the federal subsidy program, a spokesperson for the National Telecommunications and Information Administration said BEAD will still connect everyone in America and ensure that newly connected households have access to affordable plans. The ACP program has a wide swath of support from public interest groups, local and state-level broadband officials, and big and small telecommunications providers. We were very aggressive in trying to assist our members with access to the program, said Gary Johnson, CEO of Paul Bunyan Communications, a Minnesota-based Internet provider. Frankly, it was they have Internet or not. It's almost not a subsidy. It is enabling them to have Internet at all. And now on page two, an article entitled California's Iconic Wharfs Under Siege. More storms, rising seas, and huge waves are taking their toll on California's iconic piers that have dotted the Pacific coast since the gold rush, posing the biggest threat yet to the beach landmarks that have become a quintessential part of the landscape. At least a half-dozen public piers are closed after being damaged repeatedly by storms with multiple atmospheric rivers hitting the state over the past year. Repair costs have climbed into the millions of dollars. Among those shuttered is the pier in Capitola, built in 1857, that predates the northern California town and is a popular spot to watch passing whales and dolphins. 
Another damaged by storms in San Diego, the Ocean Beach Pier, offers a bird's eye view of surfers carving waves below. More damage is possible this year with El Nino, which is expected to bring additional storms to California caused by the temporary warming of parts of the Pacific that changes weather worldwide. Back-to-back atmospheric rivers have been drenching California, causing flooded roads, toppled trees, and traffic accidents. City engineers are looking at redesigning piers to withstand bigger surf with a rise in sea levels. Others face relocation or removal. We are very much in a changed environment, said Mike Beck, director of the Center for Coastal Climate Resilience at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and we're not going to be able to rebuild back in the same places and in the same ways that we did before. We're going to have to think more clearly about how we design and where we put these. Most piers have undergone major repairs after enduring everything from fires to erosion, but officials say they are now being damaged at an unprecedented rate. Waves rising to heights topping to 20 feet in late December pummeled the 855-foot-long, could make their historic look more industrial. But these are tough conversations for many who consider the piers almost sacred. It's sometimes a little bit of a funny thing here in California, the way we love our piers, he said. For generations, the structures have provided families, fishers, tourists, and others a peaceful place to experience the ocean without getting wet. In Ventura, west of Los Angeles, the Visitors and Convention Bureau waxes poetic about the pier built in 1872 that it calls the city's centerpiece. Walk Ventura's beaches, and in the distance it wavers like a child's matchstick project, the Bureau states on its website, sit on the sand at its base on a calm day, and it whispers a lovely song any ocean and pier lover knows. California's oldest piers served steamships and were lifelines for settlements to get lumber, bricks, and cement, with much of the coast decades from being reached by a railroad. Piers were later built for tourism, like the Santa Monica Pier, which has an amusement park with the world's first solar-powered Ferris wheel. On page 3, we find an article regarding the school shooting in Michigan. The article is entitled, Jury Finds Mother Guilty. Teen is serving a life sentence for a rampage that left four dead. A Michigan jury convicted a school shooter's mother of involuntary manslaughter Tuesday in the killings of four students in 2021. Prosecutors say Jennifer Crumbly, 45, had a duty under state law to prevent her son, who was 15 at the time, from harming others. She was accused of failing to secure a gun and ammunition at home and failing to get help to support Ethan Crumbly's mental health. The four guilty verdicts, one for each student slain at Oxford High School, were returned after about 11 hours of deliberations. Jennifer and James Crumbly were the first parents in the U.S. to be charged in a mass school shooting committed by their child. James Crumbly faces trial in March. 
The cries have been heard, and I feel this verdict is going to echo throughout every household in the country, victim Justin Schilling's father, Craig Schilling, said outside the courtroom. I feel it's necessary, and I'm happy with the verdict. It's still a sad situation to be in. It's got to stop. It's an accountability, and this is what we've been asking for a long time now, Schilling said. On the morning of November 30, 2021, school staff members were concerned about a violent drawing of a gun, bullet, and wounded man accompanied by desperate phrases on Ethan Crumbly's math assignment. His parents were called to the school for a meeting, but they didn't take the boy home. A few hours later, Ethan Crumbly pulled a handgun from his backpack and shot 10 students and a teacher. No one had checked the backpack. The gun was the Sig Sauer 9mm his father purchased with him just four days earlier. Jennifer Crumbly took her son to a shooting range that same weekend. Outside the courthouse, the jury forewoman, who declined to give her name, said jurors were influenced by evidence that Jennifer Crumbly was the last adult to possess the gun. That really hammered it home, she told reporters. Indeed, the jury saw images of Jennifer Crumbly leaving the shooting range with the gun in a box. He literally drew a picture of what he was going to do, Prosecutor Karen McDonald said. It says, help me. Ethan Crumbly, now 17, pleaded guilty to murder and terrorism and is serving a life sentence. Jennifer Crumbly will get credit for about two and a half years in the county jail when she returns to court for sentencing on April 9. And now from the Middle East, Qatar gets positive response. Negotiators are trying to arrange a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. Hamas responds to the latest plan for a ceasefire in Gaza and the release of hostages was generally positive, key mediator Qatar said on Tuesday, as the militant group reiterated its demand for an end to the war, something Israel so far ruled out. Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Al Thani announced the response during a news conference with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who said he would brief Israeli leaders on it Wednesday when he meets with them. Blinken, who met with Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman the day before, said the Saudis still have a strong interest in normalizing relations with Israel, but require an end to the war and a clear, credible, time-bound path to the establishment of a Palestinian state. Qatar, which has long mediated with Hamas, is working with the U.S. and Egypt to broker a ceasefire that would involve a halt in fighting for several weeks and the release of more than 100 hostages still held by Hamas after its October 7 cross-border raid that ignited the war. Hamas said in a statement that it responded in a positive spirit to the latest proposal, but the militant group said it still seeks, quote, a comprehensive and complete, close quote, ceasefire to end, quote, the aggression against our people, close quote. 
Hamas is also expected to demand the release of a large number of Palestinian prisoners, including high-profile militants, in exchange for the hostages. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ruled out both demands, saying Israel is committed to continuing its offensive until, quote, total victory, close quote, over Hamas, and to returning all the hostages. He has also dismissed U.S. calls for the creation of a Palestinian state. Meanwhile, Tuesday, two ships traveling in Middle East waters were attacked by suspected Yemen Houthi rebel drones. Authorities said the latest assaults in the Iranian-backed fighters' campaign of targeting vessels over Israel's war on Hamas. No injuries were reported in either incident. Since November, the rebels have repeatedly targeted ships in the Red Sea over Israel's offensive in Gaza against Hamas. In recent weeks, the United States and other allies launched airstrikes targeting Houthi missile arsenals and launch sites for the attacks. And now from Congress, an article entitled House GOP Fails in Bid to Impeach Mayorkas. Defectors Sink Party Plan in Close Vote Over Issues at Border. In a dramatic setback, House Republicans failed Tuesday to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, forced to shelve a high-profile priority for now after a few GOP lawmakers refused to go along with the party's plan. The 214-216 roll call fell just a single vote short of impeaching Mayorkas, stalling the Republicans' drive to punish the Biden administration over its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. With Democrats united against the charges, the Republicans needed almost every vote from their slim majority to approve the articles of impeachment. The House is likely to revisit plans to impeach Mayorkas, but next steps are highly uncertain. House Speaker Mike Johnson, who could lose only a few Republicans from his slim majority, said he personally spoke to the GOP holdouts, acknowledging the heavy, heavy vote as he sought their support. The impeachment charges against Mayorkas come as border security is fast becoming a top political issue in the 2024 election. Not since 1876 had a cabinet secretary faced impeachment charges. Also from Washington, we have an article entitled Biden tells Republicans to, quote, show some spine, close quote. Border security and Ukraine aid deal looks to be all but finished. A Senate deal on border enforcement measures and Ukraine aid suffered collapse Tuesday as Republicans withdrew support despite President Joe Biden urging Congress to show some spine and stand up to Donald Trump. Just minutes after the Democratic president's remarks at the White House, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, emerged from a GOP luncheon at the Capitol and acknowledged the deal was dead. It showed McConnell slipping control of his GOP conference, Trump's growing influence, and Biden's ability only to look on as a cornerstone of his foreign policy, halting Russian President Vladimir Putin's advance into Europe 
crumbled in Congress. The bill also would have designated tens of billions of dollars more for Israel, other U.S. allies in Asia, the U.S. immigration system, and humanitarian aid for civilians in Gaza and Ukraine. The President and Senate leaders are now stranded with no clear way to advance aid for Ukraine through Congress. House Republicans on Tuesday night failed to pass a separate $17.6 billion package of military aid for Israel that contained no aid for Ukraine. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette for Wednesday, February 7, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Messenger for Wednesday, February 7, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, we have an article entitled Outpouring of Love. There is a picture with the article. uh, It's a scene at Hy-Vee. The caption, Hy-Vee in Fort Dodge is facilitating donations for the, quote, Barlow Girls Fund, close quote, to help support the three Fort Dodge sisters who lost their parents and grandmother to gun violence on January 28. Members of the community are also invited to write notes of encouragement or share memories that will be printed in a book for the girls to have. A week and a half ago, the world turned upside down as a set of young sisters lost both of their parents and their grandmother in an unimaginable tragedy just outside of Fort Dodge. Molly Barlow, 39, and her mother, Phyllis Versteg, 63, were fatally shot at the family's home on the evening of January 28. Duran Barlow, 41, Molly Barlow's husband, also died that night from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It didn't take long for the focus to shift from what happened to what can we do for the couple's three young daughters, Brooklyn, Paige, and Evie. With many in the community asking how they can help, Katie Rees and Amanda Albright, Molly Barlow's sister and best friend, set up a fund at Northwest Bank for the girls. Eventually, the donations will be put into a trust for the three girls. There are three ways to donate to the fund for the Barlow sisters. Checks can be made out to Rees or Albright with Barlow Girls Fund written in the memos and mailed or delivered to Northwest Bank, attention Sarah Niemand, 10 North 29th Street, Fort Dodge, Iowa. A GoFundMe set up for the Barlow Girls has more than $20,000 so far. That can be found on the internet. A third way to donate was created this week. Donations can be made at any register at the Fort Dodge High V, 115 South 29th Street. This community always pulls together during any sort of tragedy, Reese and Albright said in a statement. It truly does show that we are never alone, even in the darkest days. Words cannot describe how thankful we are for every single person who has donated for our Barlow girls. No one else matters more right now than them. This is all for them. Their heartbreak is unimaginable. Because of each one of you, 
it makes this unimaginable time a little brighter. We are thankful for every single person's outpouring of love and support in these days, weeks, and months to come. While monetary donations can help secure the girls' futures, money isn't everything and it won't bring back their parents or grandmother. So Maddie Lind, owner of Dodge Graphics, thought of another way the community can try to bring them comfort as they try to heal. Lind, who didn't personally know the family, yet felt compelled to find some way to help, is creating a book for the sisters that contains notes of encouragement and memories from friends, family, and community members. When healing from a heavy loss like this, there will be days you don't want to talk about it. Sometimes you just want to be alone, Lind wrote on the Dodge Graphics Facebook page. Connecting to others through written language is so incredibly healing for both the reader and the writer. You never know when certain words or memories are exactly what they need to hear, even 10 years from now. Or memories from someone who is no longer around that would have been lost otherwise. A table is set up inside the south entrance to Hy-Vee with cards to write on and a basket to place them in. Hy-Vee manager Brandon Wilson said the table will be set up and donations will be accepted at Hy-Vee for another two weeks. If a community member is unable to stop at the grocery store, they can also email their notes to info at dodgegraphics.com with the subject line Barlow Memories. The Dodge Graphics team will put together a draft of the pages and all of the contents of the book to be approved by the Barlow Sisters Guardians before it is printed. Also on the front page, Webster County Auditor announces retirement. Pliner encourages others to run for the office. After serving as the Webster County Auditor for the last eight years, Doreen Pliner has announced she plans to retire at the end of this year and will not seek re-election. I have thoroughly enjoyed my time as the Auditor and Commissioner of Elections these past years, Pliner said. I am grateful for the time that I was able to work with my amazing staff, the people who gave their time as the election officials. Without them, there would be no elections. Elected officials, department heads, and the Board of Supervisors. Pliner, a Democrat, was first elected auditor in 2016. Prior to that, she served as the drainage clerk for nine years. She won re-election in the 2020 general election running unopposed. It has been my honor to work beside Doreen for the past five years, said Webster County Board of Supervisors Chair Nikki Conrad. She has been an invaluable resource to the county and has served the citizens well, but more importantly, she is a wonderful human being. We will miss her terribly, but wish her only the best in her well-earned retirement. In announcing her retirement, Pliner encouraged anyone who would like to run for the county auditor to fill out an affidavit and nomination papers. The forms can be found on the Iowa Secretary of State's website at sos.iowa.gov slash elections slash candidates slash index dot html. 
Nomination papers can be submitted anytime after March 4 and by the end of the day, March 22. And remaining with politics, on the front page, an article entitled Supervisor Campbell Running for Re-Election. So far, he has one challenger. Webster County Supervisor Mark Campbell announced his re-election bid for the Webster County Supervisor District 2 seat on Tuesday. Campbell, a Democrat, was first elected to the Board of Supervisors in 2012 and is seeking his fourth term. He lives near Otto with his wife, Chrisanne Campbell, owns Amigos Bar and Grill in Fort Dodge. While serving on the Board of Supervisors, Campbell has held several leadership roles, including board chairman. He also holds leadership roles on the Webster County Board of Health, Solid Waste Commission, and the Mental Health Advisory Board. Campbell is on the board of the National Association of Counties, and since 2020, he has also served on the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission after being appointed by Governor Kim Reynolds. The continued trust of my Webster County neighbors means the world to me. Campbell said when announcing his re-election campaign, Serving you and our neighbors has been an incredible honor, and I'm eager to continue the progress we've made together. While much has been accomplished in my prior terms as supervisor, the job is far from over. I don't take the responsibility of this role lightly, and there are no shortcuts to rural vitality. I'm committed to building on our momentum and maintaining positive growth for Webster County residents that is sustainable, collaborative, and long-term. I humbly ask for your vote in November. Campbell already has a challenger in the general election. Nathan Montgomery of Burnside announced in November his plans to run for the District 2 seat. Montgomery, a Republican, operates a lawn care service and is a 2019 graduate of St. Edmund Catholic School. District 2 covers most of the southern half of Webster County. And again on the front page, an article entitled EMS Resolution Passes First Reading in Webster County. A resolution that would declare emergency medical services to be an essential county service and allow the county to institute a levy to fund them passed its first reading by the Webster County Board of Supervisors Tuesday morning. In Iowa, police and fire departments are considered essential services and by law are funded through taxes. However, emergency medical services are not considered essential statewide, though individual counties can establish EMS as an essential service and set up a tax levy specifically to fund EMS. Currently, Webster County is not one of those counties. A public hearing was held prior to the board's vote on the first reading of the resolution. No written comments were filed and no comments were given during the hearing. Following the public hearing, the resolution's first reading passed unanimously, with board chairwoman Nikki Conrad absent. None of the supervisors commented on the measure. The resolution must go through three readings before the supervisors can vote to adopt it. If the resolution is adopted, it will allow the supervisors to put on the next election ballot a question asking voters 
to approve a local option income surtax and or a property tax levy of $0.75 per $1,000 of taxable value to be used exclusively for EMS in Webster County. A vote to implement an EMS levy must pass with at least 60% yes votes. And finally, on the first page, an article entitled Appeals Court Hears Arguments in Murder Case. Brown charged in 2021 prestige murder. His competency to stand trial is at issue. The Iowa Court of Appeals is now considering the appeal of a Fort Dodge man whose attorney says he is not competent to stand trial for the 2021 murder of a co-worker. Lucas Allen Brown, 29, is charged with first-degree murder for the February 16, 2021 slaying of 50-year-old Wayne Smith, also a Fort Dodge. According to court documents, the two men were co-workers at Prestage Foods of Iowa, outside of Eagle Grove, and while in the employee locker room at the facility, Brown allegedly attacked Smith, cutting his throat with a knife. Brown, who is diagnosed with schizophrenia, was soon deemed incompetent to stand trial due to his inability to understand the proceedings or assist in his own defense, and was sent to the Iowa Medical and Classification Center in Oakdale, a psychiatric hospital, for treatment to be restored to competency. Brown spent about 10 months at Oakdale receiving treatment, and despite several reports from the treating physicians that his status was progressing, the court received a report in February 2022 stating that Brown was still not competent and was no longer a candidate for continued restoration efforts. Iowa Code Chapter 812 requires a hearing to be held within 14 days of a report that a defendant's competency has been restored or that they are no longer a candidate for restoration. That initial hearing was held on February 11, 2022, within that 14-day time frame, but during the hearing, the prosecution requested a continuance of the hearing in order to seek a second opinion on Brown's competency. The matter resumed three months later with a hearing on May 6, during which Wright County District Court Judge Greg Rosenblatt heard testimony from Oakdale physicians Dr. Arnold Anderson and Dr. John Bayless, who treated and evaluated Brown, and from the state's expert, Dr. Roseanne, Rosanna Jones Thurman, Brown's sister also testified, and a phone call between the two that was recorded by the jail in April 2022, during the time Brown awaited the second opinion requested by the state, was played as evidence. In the phone call with his sister, Brown told her that he used the jail's CIA to talk to friends back home and was actively planning a return to Oregon and then moved to Florida for a culinary arts career. Jones Thurman testified she is not board certified in any field. None of her current patients have a schizophrenia diagnosis and she only met with Brown one time for about two hours. She said she questioned him on his understanding of key personnel at a trial, and he said he believed a judge blends the story and puts it back together. 
Jones Thurman also testified that she concluded Brown was competent to stand trial because he understands the term murder and that he killed someone despite suffering from bipolar II disorder, schizophrenia, antisocial personality disorder, and numerous substance abuse disorders. Rosenblatt ultimately sided with the state's expert, ordering on June 17, 2022, that Brown was competent to stand trial and order proceedings against him to resume. Brown's attorneys appealed Rosenblatt's ruling directly to the Iowa Supreme Court, but the case was rerouted to the Court of Appeals. On Tuesday, the Iowa Court of Appeals heard the oral arguments from Brown's appellate attorney and the state's appellate attorney on the matter. Brown's appeal focuses on three main arguments. First, the appeal contends that the district court made a mistake when it deemed Brown was competent and reinstated proceedings because the preponderance of the evidence showed that Brown is incompetent and unable to be restored to competency. Second, it contends that Chapter 812 does not authorize the state to obtain a second opinion on the matters of competency or potential for restoration. Third, it argues that the district court also erred when it failed to hold a substantive hearing within 14 days of the report from Oakdale, stating Brown is no longer a candidate for restoration treatment as required by Chapter 812, violating his due process rights. In a written brief for the appeal, Brown's appellate defender argued that Jones Thurman's testimony about concluding Brown is competent to stand trial is undermined by her own report. Asking about the credibility of Jones Thurman on Tuesday, Court of Appeals Judge Mary Tabor noted that the defendant's ability to understand the role of the jury is pretty key to the determination of competency. In Jones Thurman's report, she wrote, he reports that he can't remember what the jury does and doesn't know exactly, but they might be like court jesters. I think that's super troubling that he didn't understand that they were the fact finders in his case, Tabor said. During the oral arguments, Brown's appellate defender argued that Chapter 812 does not give the prosecution the authority to obtain a second opinion once Oakdale reports a defendant is unable to be restored to competency. The attorney argued that the Oakdale physicians are neutral experts working for neither the prosecution or defense, while Jones Thurman was hired specifically by the prosecution and is therefore not a neutral party. The state's appellate attorney argued that Rosenblatt had substantial evidence to find that Brown was restored to competency and that his defense lost the battle of the experts. The state also asserts that Chapter 812 does grant the chap parties the authority to obtain independent evaluations of the defendant's competency and restoration potential. Attorneys for the state argued that the Chapter 812's guideline to hold a hearing within 14 days of the final report from Oakdale is a directory, not mandatory duty. The case is now considered submitted to the Court of Appeals and a written ruling will be issued at a later date. 
on page two, an article entitled Toby Keith, Country Singer-Songwriter, Dies at Age 62. Toby Keith, a hit country crafter of pro-American anthems who both riled up critics and was loved by millions of fans, has died. He was 62. The should-have-been-a-cowboy singer-songwriter who had stomach cancer died peacefully Monday, surrounded by his family, according to a statement posted on the country singer's website. He fought his fight with grace and courage, the statement said. He announced his cancer diagnosis in 2022. The six-foot-four singer broke out in the country boom years of the 1990s, writing songs that fans love to hear. Over his career, he publicly clashed with other celebrities and journalists and often pushed back against record executives who wanted to smooth his rough edges. He was known for his overt patriotism on post-9-11 songs like Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue and boisterous barroom tunes like I Love This Bar and Red Solo Cup. He had a powerful, booming voice a tongue-in-cheek sense of humor, and range that carried love songs as well as drinking songs. Among his 20 number one Billboard hits were How Do You Like Me Now, As Good As I Once Was, My List, and Beer For My Horses, a duet with Willie Nelson. His influences were other working-class songwriters like Merle Haggard, and he tallied more than 60 singles on the hot country chart over his career. Throughout the cancer treatments, Keith continued to perform, most recently playing in Las Vegas in December. He also performed on the People's Choice Country Awards in 2023 as he sang his song, Don't Let the Old Man In. On page three, we find an article entitled Dayton Man Charged with Theft for selling $17,000 in hog crates. The crates belong to someone else. A Dayton man is facing up to 10 years in prison after he allegedly sold dozens of hog crates that didn't belong to him on Facebook Marketplace. According to court documents, 47-year-old Joshua Daniel Stockdale of Dayton is charged with first-degree theft, a Class C felony. He is accused of selling 100 hog crates to an Earlville man at $170 per crate for a total of $17,000. The crates, however, belonged not to Stockdale, but instead were the property of the farm he worked at Northwest, the farm he worked at Northwest of Dayton. Stockdale allegedly presented himself as the crates owner and negotiated the sale with the victim who wrote him a check for $17,000. The check was cashed on January 10, and the victim later discovered that the crates belonged to someone else, and Stockdale had no authority to keep the money from the sale. Stockdale had his initial appearance in Webster County Magistrate Court on Tuesday. He was released from custody on his own recognizance. And also, on page three, we have an article entitled, Duncombe School Starts Fundraiser. The Duncombe Elementary Student Lighthouse Team is hosting a Valentine's Day Candy Graham fundraiser to help raise money for the purchase of a washer and dryer for the building. 
Students can purchase candy grams for other students, or parents and adults can order them for students. Each candy gram will include a piece of candy and is just $2. Candy grams can be filled out and purchased at the school from 7.30 to 8.15 a.m. until February 13. There is a booth run by the Lighthouse team located inside the main entrance at Duncombe Elementary School, 1626th Avenue North. On page 4, we have the Messenger Editorial entitled, Mega Proposal Offers Potential Benefits for Fort Dodge Area. Bill Providing Incentives Should Be Approved. In the effort to get new jobs and growth in a community, the reality is that some kind of incentives must be offered. Not offering incentives would be the equivalent of disarming yourself in a battle. With that in mind, Iowa's lawmakers are working on a new package of incentives designed to attract very large investments to the state. And by very large, we mean projects worth $1 billion or more. This proposed incentive package may seem like just another of the hundreds of bills that pass through the state capitol every year without apparently having any impact on most local folks. It is actually not one of those bills. It is a measure that could have a great positive impact on the Fort Dodge region because Iowa's crossroads of global innovation, the Ag Industrial Park in Webster County, is ideally suited for such a big project. The proposal is called the Major Economic Growth Attraction Program and is often called MEGA for short. It would offer developers a refund of sales, service, and use taxes paid during construction. It would also offer a refundable investment tax credit of up to 5% of the capital investment, which would be a hefty sum for a $1 billion project. Lastly, it would provide a withholding tax credit. To be eligible for all that, the project would have to meet or exceed the $1 billion mark. It would also have to be related to advanced manufacturing, biosciences, or research. The project would have to create jobs that pay at least 140% of the area's wage as defined by state law and offer a qualified benefits plan. Companies that are owned by countries adversarial to the United States need not apply because the proposal specifically prohibits them from getting incentives. The proposal was approved by the state Senate last year and is now being considered by the House of Representatives. It offers a lot in an effort to get a lot. Critics might even call it corporate welfare, but the alternative, doing nothing, might send these big investments elsewhere. Because of the good-paying jobs and huge economic ripple effects such a project could have on the Fort Dodge area, we asked the House to pass the bill and send it to Governor Kim Reynolds for her signature. And that does it for today's reading of The Messenger for Wednesday, February 7, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thank you for listening.